Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. I'm here today with uh, Russell Thomas. We have the privilege of having Russell back uh, for the third time um, at Los Angeles Opera following his uh, debut with us as Polione and Norma. Uh, he then uh, followed that on, on the heels of that with uh, Coveradosi in Tosca. Uh, and we welcome him back for a very, very different kind of role. Uh, so welcome back, uh, Russell, who will be performing the title role in the uh, Clemenza de Tito at the LA Opera opening in uh, just about a month's time. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in LA. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, we don't have a ton of time. We have basically 30 minutes. So I want to con- concentrate um, mostly on the subjects of Tito and, and Mozart. Um, if you look at the kind of evolution of your career and the kind of roles that you sing and um, the fact that you have so much uh, Verdi kind of under your belt and so much Verdi coming up, and I think specifically of the um, unique set of challenges of, of Otello, um, talk about how the role of Tito kind of falls into your fock and also um, kind of into the evolution um, of you as a singer. That's kind of a big question, but... Uh, this is your fourth Tito? Yes. So you sang Tito at Salzburg, uh, at, at the, the Metropolitan Met- Opera? Uh, and in con- some concert performances a long time ago. Yeah. yeah in London, in, around the UK. Well, for me, it's very different, of course, than anything else I sing. Uh, the Mozart Opera Seria uh, was introduced to me by James Levine, uh, who suggested that I uh, put down Puccini, um, and focus on Mozart for my time in the Linda Mignon Artist Development Program. Um, uh, I did so kicking and screaming, but uh, I th- nowadays I want to sing more of it because it helps me keep my voice um, in line, it helps me keep it flexible, helps me keep it a bit more youthful, um, where you can hide uh, in Mozart and... I mean, where you can hide in Puccini or hide in Verdi uh, some flaws in the technical aspects of your uh, voice. Um, You can't hide in uh, Mozart. So it forces a certain level of discipline that um, other composers probably don't have as much of, you know. So was that his explanation at the time? Was the idea that, like, this is kind of, this is going to the gym for your voice, which allows you to do all the other things that you want to do? Or was it that they're... There were certain um, that your your particular set of gifts was being uh, not as well used in the Puccini as they would be in the in the Mozart. I think it was a bit of both. I think he was concerned that the Puccini and Verdi too early uh, was uh, going to um, have an adverse effect on my vocal development. Um, but I think uh, it was also so that it could so that my technical abilities can. Uh, develop without um, uh, having the force uh, of the type of vocalism that's required for Puccini or Verdi and that kind of repertoire. And I haven't sung a lot of Puccini, actually. My performances of um, Cavaradossi, for instance, were my first Puccini um, in maybe 14 years since I had gotten to the Met. Um, I, I sang Bohem right before I got to the Met, and then I got to the Met and never sang Puccini again uh, until I did concert performance with the Phil, with the LA Phil, and then the stage performances here. 
So did you, in returning to that repertory, did, did it feel, I mean, I guess you can't attribute how differently it would feel to the Mozart because so much else had happened in your life, in your career, in your development as an artist since then. But um, when I you, think it, I think it, I, I get the, I get the premise of the, of the question, but I do think it, it helped to put that repertoire away. Um, I learned more about myself as a singer, uh, focusing on Mozart, um, uh, how to be a bit more, di- like I said, disciplined in the vocalism, um, and I think it helps be a better singer in Verdi and Puccini and those type of and that other repertoire that I mean and I don't like Fox you mean you mentioned Fox I don't like Fox because I think it sort of bogs you down and, and said that you can only sing one thing and if I only sang one thing I'd be bored so having a varied repertoire be it new music Mozart uh, Verdi and Puccini uh, Wagner even um, keeps it exciting for me there's a lot of a lot of singers talk about this idea of Mozart being a kind of home note for them a place that they they go back to to kind of check in with the fundamentals. Um, so for the uninitiated, what does that actually mean? Why why is Mozart uniquely suited to that kind of that restoration of your discipline? Again, because you can't hide. It shows every flaw you have technically. It shows every flaw. I mean, it's not just for singers; it's for pianists and any other instrument as well. Uh, Mozart is so transparent. So when there is a flaw, or something that's not worked out um, in the in the right way, uh, it shows it. Uh, so you have to basically sit down at a piano or with your teacher or with a coach and figure out why it is that this isn't working, uh, and figure out the way for it to work. And that that alignment, so to speak, um, uh, helps you be a better singer. And a better musician because you can't do a lot of the stuff that you do with other composers in Mozart. It's cleaner. It requires a cleaner vocalism. It requires uh, a cleaner musicianship. Um, a ver- everything has to have a point and a purpose, or it becomes incredibly boring. Uh, so you have to find a way to make all of those things happen to keep it exciting, to keep it clean, and keep it musical. So when you're when you're planning your seasons three or four years in advance, I mean, are you trying to make sure that you're um, re-engaging with this material on a regular basis, in order to try to climb to the to the next step of other roles that you're taking on? I mean, is is that a conscious choice, or is it a kind of happy set of coincidences? It is for me a choice. Uh, I would want to do more of it, but um, that's just not the way the <laughs> the world works. Uh, once you start singing certain repertoire and people oh. feel like you know this is what you do, and they know you're useful in that other repertoire, you know they don't they any they, the way people believe is that anyone could sing Mozart, um, and in a way that's sort of true. Um, it's harder to cast yes in Otello or uh, Don Alvaro and, and Forza or even a Cavaradossi than it is to cast um, uh, a Ferrando and Così or Don Ottavio or even a Tito. Um, but again, it, it just, for me, I would love to sing more Mozart or even more bel canto operas uh, because I feel like that sort of gives you or fo- forces you to maintain a similar discipline uh, as the Mozart. Not as much, but it does force it on you uh, a bit more. Because maybe this is accidental, but when I when I look at the past couple of years of your schedule, it seems like you've kind of uh, because I agree with you. I think the marketplace um, is such that those roles have such incredible demands um, for singers, uh, the Verdi in, uh, in particular, 
and because the the number of singers who are capable of it are smaller than the demands right. for it within the marketplace that you you risk being pigeonholed as a singer. But what I see when I look at your schedule is this kind of intentional discipline, the, the Devereaux that was such a huge success for you um, this fall in San Francisco. I see a kind of exertion of the will of an artist to try to make sure that you're achieving that kind of balance. Well, I've tried, uh, but again, it doesn't always work. I don't, I'm not the... I'm not at a point in my career that I can make demands on theaters. So, uh, but I've I've tried to say, hey, if I do this Otello for you, can I get you know, uh, Nedigardo and in, in Lucia, you know, and and usually the answer is why, you know, why do you want to sing that? We can have anyone sing that rep, you know, uh, but for me, it's so that I don't, so the voice doesn't get too low and too heavy too soon. Um, because once the top goes, it goes. Uh, and then you're forced to sing Samson and Otello and only sort of B-flat tenor roles your whole life. Uh, and that, to me, is boring. So for as long as I can keep the youthful, uh, youthful quality in my voice, I'm, I would like to. Um, and singing bel canto repertoire and singing Mozart helps keep that or maintain that youthful quality in the voice. So if you did, if you did concert work in between these big Verdi roles, would, would that... Would that kind of bring you back to the home note, or do you find the immersion in a four-week rehearsal process and a five or four or five-week run to be the kind of that that that's the kind of discipline that really starts to to um, work against that that heaviness that you're talking about? It depends on what the concert work is. Yeah. Uh, if it's if it's you know B nine, no, you know because it's sort of sort of like you can wake up out of your sleep and sing it, you know, unless you're the soprano. Well, I um, can't, but you can. <laughs> but if it's, if it's, um, uh, if it's a, a, an opera in concert or something where you really have to take time and prepare it, uh, it yes, it's a bit different. Uh, it, it does align everything. It does sort of bring things into focus a bit more uh, because you have to spend uh, the time preparing it and working it into the voice. Um, another thing that's constant that, that for me that's conscious in my scheduling is that I try to make sure that I'm not going from a low role to a high role, um, that it's always the other way around. So if it's a high role to a lower role, uh, for instance, I'm, um, my schedule was, you know, Manrico, Manrico uh, in the fall, uh, and then uh, now it's Tito, so it's it's going, which is sits a bit lower in the voice, and then Otello, which also sits a bit lower in the voice, um, and then there's a little bit of a break, and then there's a Domineo, you know, so that nothing is sort of up and down all the time. It's sort of the worlds are all sitting in the same part of the voice. That way, you're sort of not stretching yourself uh, too much and back and forth. Uh, that because that's dangerous as well. And you're and that means you're turning down offers in order to maintain yes. that that discipline. Um, so that begs the question for me is, is there a kind of, do you have a kind of a wish list of not only of roles, but kind of, uh, because it strikes me is that you're unusually thoughtful about this kind of discipline. Um, do you have a kind of a, you know, you don't have to tell us what's on the list, but is, do you have a kind of penciled schedule for yourself of, you know, by 2023, I want to be able to sing this role in this size house? That that sort of thing is it roughly sketched out in your mind? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I have, uh, I'm adding things that people think I should never sing. Uh, I remember when um, I was at the Met, uh, and maybe like five years ago, and I was um, 
doing, I think it was Wozzeck, uh, and Levine was conducting, and he pulled me aside and he said, you know, everyone's telling me you're doing all this big Verity stuff, you know, why are you doing this to yourself? You know, you're going to ruin your voice and you're going to shorten, you know, the lifespan of your voice and blah, blah, blah. And I said, Maestro, I said, you know, you have to hear me sing it, you know. So we, we scheduled all the time and I sang the repertoire for him and he said, I don't know what everyone's so worried about. You can sing this repertoire. But he said, but don't sing Otello, <laughs> you know, but don't sing Otello. You should never sing Otello, you know. Um, but I never felt like I should never sing it. I, I think that it's a specialized voice, uh, but I think other, you know, a more lyrics voice like mine can sing it and sing it well, you know. And that means that there are, there are also roles that you're giving up as you move into this repertory. So is there anything you've given up that you uh, miss or regret having? No, I know. Nothing that I miss. Yeah. <laughs> nothing that I miss. I mean, listen, I've sung so many Taminos that I would, I, if I never saw another Magic Flute, I'd be very happy. Um, uh, but uh, I think that there there's rep that I'd, I would have wanted to sing uh, that... I was never able to sing or no one was ever very interested in me to sing. For instance, like Alfredo and Traviata, you know, I've, and I still feel like I can see it now, but it's one of those roles that, you know, Tenorinos are now singing. Yeah. Um, so no one would ever cast me for it, you know? And then there are the, the you know, like you say, wishlist roles, you know, there's the, the, there are the Grimes and, you know, um, mm. and, and, and Tannhäuser's that I want to sing, you know, uh, that I think, I can sing, and it's a matter of making sure that I have the the time to prepare them and, and to for the work them into the schedule in a way that makes sense. I feel like thematically we're we're kind of in the in the area of of discipline, and you mentioned that that people give you this advice. I think one of the amazing things, you know, the, what we ask of opera singers is nothing short of superhuman. Um, and then there, we create all these impediments to them giving incredible performances. And, and one of them, I think, is this uh, the white noise of of the chorus of opinions, because you're just surrounded with people who believe that they I mean, and I think that a lot of them probably have their your or they believe they have your best interests at heart. Um, but I mean, how, how do you as an artist determine what is correct for you? And, and push all those other uh, opinions aside? It's been very easy for me. Uh, for other singers, it's, it's not so easy. Um, but I've always had a, an idea of who I was as an artist. I've always had an idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, I know I needed to get have my technique in order, in order to do it, so I made myself a better singer so that I was able to do the rep that I, or sing the rep that I wanted to sing. Uh, I ask a lot of people for their opinions, um, but I have a way of, you know, discerning <laughs> what is useful and what isn't. Um, and I think that that's the, that's the toughest thing ever for a singer because all the time, most singers are thinking about the next job, you know, I or being reinvited. You know, I want to do a good job on this part because I want to be reengaged again uh, because reengaging is how we you know, keep our career Make going. Make a living. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, no one wants to just sing in theaters one time and never sing there again. Um, so I've been lucky and, and also very conscious of it uh, in a way that I, I accept people's opinions, I listen to everything, and then I know what to keep and what to toss. Um, it's very difficult for singers. 
because you want to you want to appease as many people as you can because those are the people especially the people who have the power to hire you or or recommend you to be hired you know you want to be make sure that they think that you take them seriously and their opinion seriously but you also have to you know think about yourself it's a very selfish life you have to have, be very selfish and it's difficult for a lot of us to uh, learn how to be selfish I would imagine you end up in a positive f- feedback loop though when when you follow your instincts and there are rewards from that that you gain greater confidence in l- continuing to listen to those instincts I mean have you, you ever sh- made you a should. mistake um, in terms of in terms, in terms of, of repertoire repertory I don't think so I don't think so I've um, I don't think so. Not yet. There's. I haven't. I've never taken on something, that and and learned it, and then wasn't. Then felt like I shouldn't have done this. You know, um, no, never. Um, because if it, if I have enough time to prepare, usually I'm preparing about a year out, or it's a prepared a year before. So if I felt a year before that I couldn't sing something, I'm gonna let my agent know, and hopefully they let the theater know that hey, you got to find somebody else. But I haven't been in that position yet. Yeah, so walk us through the the um, process of preparation. Do you have a, a coach that you work with? Do you? I don't coach. I'm probably one of the only singers yeah. that I don't coach. Um, and there's a particular reason for that. Um, I think that coaches like, um, like voice teachers, like anybody else, voice teachers are necessary. I don't know if necessarily coaches are. Um, and, and not to be insulting to coaches, but um, if – if a coach hears or feels a, a piece of music in one way, just say Otello, uh, and I come in singing and coaching Otello, and there are 10 other people that come in coaching Otello, they're not going to give them 10 different ways to sing this repertoire. They're going to tell them the way that they feel that music. So you're going to have this homogenous 10 tenors singing Otello all in the same exact way uh, with their own instruments, but they're going to all do it and have, be it the phrasing uh, or their musical choices are all going to be sort of homogenous because this one person told them to do all these different things. That's one reason why I don't coach. The other reason is you get you coach for six, eight, ten weeks uh, on some repertoire. Then you get into a rehearsal situation with a conductor that tells you that everything you've done is all wrong. And because you beat yourself in the head trying to learn it the way that some coach to- showed you or told you to do it, then it's harder to make the changes when a conductor comes to you and says, hey, I don't, I don't like that choice, uh, make a different choice. Then it's harder for you to, to adjust your choice to fit what the conductor needs. Or the physicality or demands of, of the staging may, may need you to do something else um, or to make a different choice. And that's hard after you've sort of beat yourself in the head with someone's idea for, you know, six months. You know, so I avoid as much as possible that I have a pianist or two that I go to and say, hey, play through this. Tell me if I'm singing the right notes and if I'm singing the right rhythms. And that's the extent of our uh, relationship. It's not try this, try that, do that, do it this way. Uh, It's, you know, that rhythm is wrong. It should be this or that pitch is wrong. You're out of tune here. And then I circle and I go home and I fix it. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective because I actually think of, um, I mean, obviously, that coach-singer relationship is very tricky, and every house you go into has a different set of coaches. Uh, again, because I'm wallowing in the same theme here, I I, I, I have tended to think of it as um, like a sports coach or a, or a personal trainer, or someone, someone who basically is enforcing upon you a discipline which is sometimes hard for you to impose upon yourself, not you, Russell, 
uh, any, any human being when given given the choice between you know climbing a particularly difficult mountain learning a very challenging role um, and the alternative sometimes it's it's helpful to have that kind of external pressure on you um, <clears throat> yes but if it were if the extent of it was just discipline that's different yeah absolutely you know? it's not but, interpretive right yeah uh, yeah it's a, if it when it becomes interpretive when it becomes musical choices and sometimes singers don't know why they make certain choices because oh well the could this coach or that coach told me to do it um and i prefer to have well when i did this with levine this was his idea here or when i did this with uh, uh sir davis you know sir sir sir, sir colin that's this was his idea here um i prefer that than to say you know well this coach told me to do this um uh and and before i even get to the point where i get in front of a conductor or in a rehearsal period my score already has you know my ideas that i how i think it should go sort of written off in the side um and i take my, my interpretation or the way i wanted to do it and find a way to make that match with what i'm told be it in the staging or musically from a conductor no. I think it's like one of the most beautiful things about that set of ideas is um, I think one of the most moving things about opera is the kind of is this chain of stewardship. So so the you know, the, the a piece was conceived, you know, Tito, of course, was Mozart's last ma- masterpiece. Um, and, th- and then it gets handed from generation to generation. And what I think is really beautiful about what you said is that. Um, you have this accumulation of knowledge as a singer, so every time you come back to a role, it's it's different because it's informed by your experience of a different set of musicians around you, right. um, the inspiration of a different conductor, the inspiration of different cast members, and that your your interpretation of that role just gets richer and richer. Maybe not with Tomino, Hopefully. but um, Hopefully. over time, yeah. I, I think that's very moving and very beautiful and actually one of the things about opera that I that I'm so attracted to is that kind of accumulation of knowledge. Um, I have drifted from my own discipline that we were supposed to talk about Tito. So actually, <laughs> let's combine those those two ideas, which is um, talk about the the evolution of your uh, adopting of the role of the character of the particular musical demands um, of of the rewards of of coming back to the piece. It's it's I mean it's an unusual piece in the canon. It is an unusual piece. Um, my evolution with the part was again um from you know Levine saying hey look at this role uh and sitting down and and sort of coaching it and teaching it to me uh through his assistants and himself uh and I sang bits and pieces in concert with him um and then actually having the opportunity to sing the entire thing uh in concert a few times um uh in Europe um and singing it in concert, almost uncut, it was the longest experience of my life. Um, but um, I learned a lot through the process. Um, and then I did, I covered and uh, covered it a couple of times at the Met. And then I sang a few performances uh, at the Met. And that that experience sort of, you know, elevated it a bit more in terms of the characterization and everything. But it was in a very traditional production, that Pinnell production. Uh, it's a beautiful production, beautiful. but again, it's very, it's very traditional in a way that sort of nothing really happens. Uh, and and with Tito as a character, he already doesn't do much. Uh, everyone else talks about him the whole night, mm-hmm. 
um, so that production itself didn't teach me much, but I, I had, you know, Harry Bickett uh, to work with on it. I had, like I said, Levine I worked with on it. So I had a lot of musical ideas. Um, but, you know, theatrically, there wasn't much going on for me in that part. Um, until, you know, I worked on it with Peter Sellers in Salzburg in summer of 16 or summer of 17. Um, and then that was a whole other can of worms, you know. Um, he saw, they saw Tito as a religious experience um, and a more spiritual thing than this, uh, than a very political one. Um, and that sort of, uh, and, and then, then the fact that Tito died at the end uh, peppered a lot of my interpretation. And so to come back to a bit of a traditional, a modern, if I can, if I can say a more modernized traditional version of this opera now, uh, and working with that and feeling and seeing sort of how the the character can evolve. I've, I've only staged the first act, but seeing how the character can evolve um, even in the short time of, you know, coming on stage and, and seeing in the first two arias uh, has been a treat because I could, I could pepper, you know, the religious political parts of it that I learned before and the more traditional part before that, even before that. So, Again, all of it sort of, I take bits and pieces from everywhere to create something that hopefully is more informed or um, uh, advanced. I don't know. I don't know the right word to use, but something that makes um, it a more interesting character. Because I don't think he's a very interesting character, just the way it's written. Because he's sort of perfect, and no one's perfect. People can't relate to... Perfect is boring. Yeah, perfect is boring. You know, people can't... And I don't think the average person or the average audience member uh, can relate to perfect. This ideal... uh, This idea that there is this person that is the... This benevolent ideal ruler, uh, especially in in politics around the world today, I don't think anybody believes that. So to have this character that's perfect is sort of a bit, you know, pie in the sky and boring. Uh, so you have to find a way to make him more interesting. And so that's what I've tried to do uh, uh, over the years. And I think that's the, the, the good thing is, is that having a more heroic voice sing the part mm-hmm. uh, also helps that too. Because if it's, you know, a tenorino or a light lyric singer singing it, uh, it can be a become, become a bit dry. It begs the question for me, what, what is, what is um, your idealized rehearsal situation i mean what what kind of what kind of atmosphere do you want in in the room in order for you to do your best work see that's hard because each yeah. role in each uh, opera is a bit different but uh as long as there's one where where, where ideas can be shared freely and openly both musical uh, and theatrical both, both musically and, and theatrical absolutely um uh, I don't I th- mean to separate the two, but yeah, absolutely, no, no. But they they are separate, but they are working together for one goal, of course. But they are separate. I think, and that is what uh, if that if that process or if that if there's an openness in that process, um, it makes for um, a better uh, end result. I think um, if every singer comes with their own ideas, um, and then the director has his ideas and and, and ex- can explain to you why. And not just because I said so, you know, uh, there, uh, that helps, uh, the, 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 the atmosphere and the end result be more rewarding, I think. 
Yeah, I've often said that the, the, the worst projects I've ever been involved with have been the easiest, meaning the ones that are kind of frictionless, because it says to me that in the rehearsal room, no one in particular is invested in the end result. Yeah. Whereas if you have this kind of marketplace of ideas that you talk about, it creates tension. Right. But that tension, I think, can be channeled in a way that creates a better product on stage because because you've worked through something um, <clears throat> that the, the end product has been forged through through this marketplace as opposed to something that is... Um, I think an audience can feel if a rehearsal process has been either on autopilot or if colleagues... Because this, as you know, in, you know, in a we're a stagione house, but in a repertory house, um, you can end up with a Mozart opera, you know, which is so heavily dependent upon a ensemble and upon um, uh, a musical chemistry between those individuals. You know, you can you can go to a performance of Giovanni in which it genuinely feels that people are meeting each other on stage for the first time. Absolutely, and. Um, you know, I th I think there is something primal about that that an audience can feel. Absolutely, um, it, you can tell if something is under rehearsed. You can also tell if something is over rehearsed, um, and you can also tell if people went to great lengths not to offend because you end up with something that's mediocre. Um, it's not offensive in any way, and I think that if art in some way doesn't offend somebody, then it's useless. You know, it has to. Uh, evoke some kind of reaction, vis some kind of visceral reaction in one way or another. E either they love it, you know, uh, a lot, or they absolutely hate it. Yeah, and I, th I think that this this is sometimes misunderstood because it's, I think that people, when hearing statements like that, think that somehow directors set out to be provocative for its own sake, right. as opposed to being really invested in wrestling with themes and concepts that are embedded in these works that have made them survive the test of time and really wrestling with, with what it, what these themes and concepts mean over the course of hundreds of years and wrestle with it in, in a, in a kind of honest way. And that, that, that will result in, in something that feels alive as opposed to something that, you know, as I think you pointed, can feel quite kind of cool and remote and designed I don't think not, not to offend, but but not to evoke anything, just to sort of be decorative or pretty or right, you know. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's that's the thing that you most want to to work against. Absolutely, I think it's not a decorative art form. It's not a decorative art form, and I think um, uh, a term that a lot of directors use is that it shouldn't be a museum piece. It shouldn't be something for a museum, and and that's true. I think the the beautiful thing about opera is that we have words and we have people and we have humans uh, on stage um, making um, or expressing emotions, uh, and emotions are always evolving. And, and how Tito fits today versus how it fit in the 1780s um, is uh, something to be explored uh, and doesn't have to be the same thing that it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. It can evolve. Um, and if people don't figure out or set out or productions don't set out to find a way to be relevant in the time that they're in, uh, you could end up with something that's just very pretty but doesn't say anything, you know. And I think that's what, uh, I think that's what great directors try to avoid. They don't want a museum piece. They want something that uh, says something to people today, you know. And I think that's what 
Uh, I think that's what that is doing. Uh, he, we've spoken about it. Uh, although he wants something that's also beautiful, um, uh, but he also wants something that's um, that that people can relate to, that audiences can relate to now. Yeah, I would say that something something that we're invested in as a house is that you know the the opera company is relatively young, the city is relatively young. Um, I think to everyone's great astonishment, this is the company premiere of Clemenza de Tito, and so when you, when you're introducing a repertory to people, you want to make sure that people have a kind of point of entry into it, and that um, <clears throat> I think the concept of regie theater is very misunderstood. I think the concept of kind of Eurotrash is misunderstood. If an American audience, you know, goes to the Deutsche Opera and they're seeing a production of Aida that that doesn't look like the one at the Met, what they're not acknowledging is that kind of accumulation where every production was in some way in dialogue with the one that had come before. And so if you just drop down in 2018 and you haven't had that evolution, right? Um, that somehow it, it can feel like, and some directors are trying to pull the wool over an audience's eyes, but it's always been very important to us that, that um, our audience is super tolerant of setting anything anywhere as long as they don't feel like they're being um, cut out of the equation. Right. They always want a kind of fidelity of storytelling, meaning that it, it has to be clear and you have incredible license to do anything you want to in terms of uh, aesthetic interpretation, as long as it is clear. Um, and so, th and that clarity is the most difficult thing, especially if you're trying to update something to a different period, or if you're trying to tell the same story but in a different way. Um, a lot of uh, that that clarity can get lost. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and so I, I, I mean, I mentioned that because I think that that is. Uh, this is Thaddeus' uh, third project with us, um, and it's something that I think that he does really well, which is very clear storytelling, but with incredible kind of layers of interpretation. Um, that was certainly very true of his Nabucco that he did with us um, last season. And so he was, you know, he, he's done something which, as you say, is very, very beautiful, very sumptuous, um, but that, you know, and we're early on in the process that I, I, I hope will um, pack a punch. So. I think it will. I think people will... I, mean, I think it will be a beautiful show, and it will be uh, moving as well. Um, yeah, just from our conversations about it, again, we've it's very early in the process, but just from our conversations about it, he understands uh, that, and this is my first time ever working with him, and it's been a great experience, you know. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah. It's wonderful to have you back. Thank you and, so much. And uh, we're great very, very back. grateful for your time. Thank, Thank you for you. talking to us today. Thank you. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.